a crossover the world has never seen. Witness the uncanny, amazing, and spectacular clash of chained wallets and superfluous pouches as our two intrepid explorers venture into the soundtrack spawn. Get ready, true believers, because you're listening to Days of the New. Thursday, and I hope you're ready for another episode of Days, Days of, of the New. <sighs> Welcome to the podcast that has ruined your Spotify recommendations. This is Days of the New. I'm Kevin, joined with my co-host Nick. And if this is your first time listening, every episode we take a classic album from about 1995 to 2002 in the genre known as new metal and break it down. What did it mean? What is its historical impact? And how has it shaped our lives moving forward? Today we are going to be covering the 1997 soundtrack to the motion picture Spawn. And this is going to be the first soundtrack that we've ever done. So before we get into that, we need to set the stage for how we got to this point. Nick, when it comes to Spawn, did you read the Spawn comic book? So I was into comics for a couple of years and I wanted to be like everything I get into. Like I want to do it to the like fullest extent. So as soon as I got into comics, all I wanted to do was to be a penciler. <laughs> for, uh, so I quickly identified the uh, artists that I liked the most. And then right as I learned all their names, they all quit Marvel and formed Image, right? So, like, I was there for the beginning of that. Like, I had all the number ones of, you know, Savage Dragon and Wildcats and Spawn and Youngblood and all that stuff. I still mm-hmm. have a bunch of them. I went back and rebought the ones that I lost because, like, they captured a really, like, strong 12-year-old moment in my life. I had the first couple issues of Spawn. I lent out the first one so much that like it got red to the point where it like, fell off <laughs> yep, the staple, yep. like, the cover slid off. Um, but I never quite got it. Like I think I was definitely too young for that first wave of Image comics. They were very adult-driven and like hypersexual and like complicated uh, to the point where my mom found a copy of Savage Dragon. She was like, <laughs> "What are you reading?" But yeah, I, I didn't stick with Spawn. I was into more like the superhero team, X Men kind of stuff. So like Wildcats is my book. I liked I liked the artwork and I liked how dark it was, but I wasn't like gothic yet. For me, Spawn was such a sticking point in my comics journey. So in 1992, the biggest names in comics left Marvel. And we're talking about Todd McFarlane, Rob Liefeld, Jim Lee, baby. And these were huge names in comics. And they worked on titles like Spider-Man, X-Force, X-Men, you name it. And they really drove that 90s style at Marvel for a long time. Yeah, they created a lot of the characters that Marvel's still using in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So they left because they had no creator-owned content and they formed their own company called Image. And they released characters that they owned and they created and it was a major shakeup for the comics industry. It, it saved the comics industry. It did. It absolutely did. You know, there was a point where Marvel was going bankrupt and selling off all of their rights to their characters. That's why you don't see X-Men appear in Avengers films because however many years ago they had to stop themselves from going bankrupt and sold the rights to those characters. Today, Image Comics is probably best known for being the home to Robert Kirkman's The Walking Dead series. But in 1992, there was only one name for Image Comics, and that was Spawn. 
written and drawn by Todd McFarlane. Spawn tells the story of a mercenary named Al Simmons, his death, his descent into hell, and his rebirth as a hell spawn fighting against the armies of heaven. It was every preteen boy's go-to comic. It had blood. It had coarse language. It had demons from hell. It had sexually provocative poses. Lots of chains, man. Lots, lots of chains. Lots of chains. <laughs> lots of pouches. Guns that made no sense. Even the movie has guns that don't make sense. It's great. It is great. And it influenced the whole style of drawing where everything is elongated. People have these huge eyes. It's just the weirdest style, but it's very unique. And as of this recording, Spawn is still going. It actually passed 300 issues in 2018 and is now recognized as the longest running indie comic of all time. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. But back in 1997, Spawn Fever was at its peak. That came with an HBO animated series and a movie which is what we are talking about today. The Spawn movie came out in 97 and was followed by a soundtrack on Immortal Records. And this is the same label that was responsible for the Judgment Night soundtrack, which we will be talking about in a later episode, and the Korn self-titled. Immortal actually released everything from the self-titled Korn album all the way to Take a Look in the Mirror. If you look at the lineup of this soundtrack, it doesn't really smack of new metal. And I know that a lot of people will probably think of it as not being a new metal soundtrack, to which I would say, I find when it comes to new metal, I use the Justice Potter Stewart fence, which is an obscenity case in Jacob Ellis versus Ohio in 1964. Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart, when asked to define pornography, said, I shall not today attempt to further define the kinds of material I understand to be embraced within that shorthand description. And perhaps I could never succeed in intelligibly doing so, but I know it when I see it. And that's what new metal means to me. I know it when I see it. <laughs> I think I like it. I think there's new metal energy. I think I want to do an episode down the road of not new metal bands that had a new metal moment. Because mm -hmm. I've come across some recently that I didn't know about, and there are some that I did know about that is just stupid. But I would agree this came out in that heyday, and most of these tracks are at least influenced by new metal, but they all definitely fall into that twisted kind of vibe. Absolutely. I read a great article on Vice where they kind of broke down this soundtrack. They made a very good point that this came out in the summer of 97. If it would have come out in the summer of 98, every single band on here would have been a new metal band. Mm -hmm. But the idea behind the soundtrack came from the music director, Happy Walters. Walters is a name that you're going to be hearing a little bit when it comes to the genesis of new metal, because this was the music director behind the film Judgment Night. A very good argument could be made that the Judgment Night soundtrack was the birth of rap rock. It was the first time since Aerosmith and Run DMC that you took rock and metal artists and paired them with hip hop artists and had them collaborate on a song. Right, and in not a cheesy way. Like, when Aerosmith and Run DMC did it, they were both at, like, the corniest parts of their careers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Judgment Night had Helmet and House of Pain, Faith No More and Booyah Tribe, uh, Pearl Jam and Cypress Hill, Cypress Hill and Sonic Youth. Like, these were big bands coming together and actually collaborating. Walters was instrumental in the birth of new metal, shepherding in the Judgment Night soundtrack and later the Blade Two soundtrack, which was 
hip hop artists with techno artists and the Spawn soundtrack. He's also responsible for curating the 1995 Power Rangers movie. Yeah, that's a thing he did. So way to go, Happy. I mean, hey, we gotta eat. Man's gotta eat. Man's gotta eat, that's true. Let's get right into the business of talking about the Spawn soundtrack. Nick, I understand that you watched the movie and I would love to get your thoughts on that. It's it's paused halfway through. Um, I ran out of time. I wanted to get it done before we recorded this. But it's so god-awful <laughs> that I'm, I'm not kidding. It's it's maybe the worst movie I've ever seen. And, like, I was looking at, like, the reviews and, like, Siskel and Ebert fought over it. Like, Roger Ebert thought it was a good movie. And Gene Siskel was like, are you out of your mind? It, like, got nominated for all these, like, special effects awards and, like, I know this movie came out after Jurassic Park and after Terminator 2, and it looks way worse than those movies. But also, the acting's terrible, it has the worst script ever, and there's some questionable racial decisions made. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, they didn't, the studios didn't want to make it look like they were making a movie for the African-American segment, even though the lead character is a african-american man in fact when i went to amazon to download it it said like a black man turns into a superhero and i was like jesus <laughs> so moving right in we kick it off with filter and crystal methods trip like i do and holy shit what's not to love this is to me probably one of the most perfect examples of collaboration done right and i think it holds up yeah, it's pretty cool. It very much captures the vibe uh, of that time. And like electronic music, I don't know, I'd say like second wave of popularity, like after like Chicago house music and stuff in the early 90s, like there was this new level with like the Crystal Method and the Chemical Brothers and the Prodigy, the Orb, Orbital, all that stuff. Some of those acts are on this record. And it was this very like clubby, loungy, like sexy kind of electronic music. This and this is definitely right in the period of like raves and people doing ecstasy. And this song like just wraps itself all up in that. So the original song was still called Trip Like I Do. And it was the first song on Crystal Method's debut LP, Vegas. And Filter, who still at that time was the original duo of uh, Richard Patrick and whatever the other dude's name was, they took that track and laid their guitars over it and edited it and put vocals on it. And it was done lovingly and it was done with intent and it shows. It shows in just how well it holds up and the fact that both the Crystal Method and Filter appeared in the, they shot a video for it and appeared in it together. So they both were mutually invested in the success of that song. And it shows what, whereas a lot of these, it doesn't. It was a release as a single too. This one got radio play. I still play remixes of this in some of the uh, dance parties that I DJ, just to see who out there will go, fuck yeah. And nobody does. Most people leave the room. It got up to 30 on Billboard's active rock chart and 29 on Billboard's modern rock track. So that put it squarely in the top 40 because I definitely heard this song on the radio a lot. Next up is what is probably the biggest single off of this, and that's Sneaker Pimps with Marilyn Manson, Long Hard Road Out of Hell. This was an immensely popular track that I never cared for. When you listen to that song, you're not going to hear the Sneaker Pimps influence, mm -mm. and there is a reason for that. In the recording of this, Sneaker Pimps and Marilyn Manson fucking hated each other. That's because Marilyn Manson dick-tapped the dude when he walked into the studio. He did. Please, go on and tell the listener. <laughs> yeah, so, like, 
Manson recalled the guitar player of the Sneaker Pimps had just got hit in the foreskin and he told me about it, <laughs> which is the dumbest fuck thing to do because the first thing I did is hit him in the dick and that probably added some tension into the room. Yeah, it, it might be. <laughs> I don't understand getting hit in the foreskin exactly. I mean, did he did he get circumcised like as an adult? Yeah. And how would you know that? I don't I don't know. I do like that the female vocalist of the Sneaker Pimps, who by the way, the Sneaker Sneaker Pimps are dope. Like I really like the sneaker pimps. I'm going to stop you uh, right there. Sneaker pimps suffer from the orgy effect. Oh, uh, really? I haven't dug too deep. <laughs> name name me your favorite sneaker pimp song. Six Underground. Okay, name me your next favorite one. <laughs> I don't know. See? <laughs> <laughs> but it's such a good song. Sneaker pimps are dope. That uh, state yeah, right. holds up. Uh, all right. I found a quote via MTV News that Kelly Alley, the front women of the Sneaker Pimps. She did not feel that any of the bands on the soundtrack were very good, but thought that collaborating with one of the bands would give them a chance to, in her own words, polish a turd. Yes, polished a turd. She goes on to say, we knew they weren't very good. And we thought when we first approached it, we thought, well, we don't like the music, but we can do something good. It was crap anyway. The song was crap. Uh, Marilyn Manson, on the other hand, and this was at a time when Marilyn Manson was on a lot of drugs and probably the biggest name in music. Everything he did was provocative and insane, and he commanded a platform. So he sounds pretty full of himself on this, but he goes on to say, I wouldn't waste my time having hard feelings. I've already forgotten their names. When they approached me to work with them, it was a bit of a favor in a sense because we had already written the song and I was interested in finding a girl to sing backup vocals on it. He goes on to say, I think they were a little upset because there wasn't much for them to do when this and the song was already done. Their participation and now their opinion is quite irrelevant to me. And you can really tell, you can hear in the background the vocalist for the Sneaker Pimps, you know, doing some vamping on the vocals. There's really no indication of that signature Sneaker Pimp sound. It's a Marilyn Manson song that maybe they mixed the boards on. It was a big hit for them. Marilyn Manson actually went on to name his autobiography Long Hard Road Out of Hell. It's probably the most well-remembered uh, song from this soundtrack. I would agree. The lyrics are trash. It's just like, let me use religious imagery and compare myself to Jesus a little bit. Marilyn Manson is very smart and he always very much knew what he was doing, but he didn't take any risks on this song. Not at all. Uh, great video, though. The original director that they tapped the original pitch that they were given for this video, Long Hard Road Out of Hell, was what would go on to become the video for Karma Police. Mm, I did come across that too. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. Next up is Orbital and Kirk Hammett of Metallica on Satan. This is where you get introduced to a very common kind of idea on these collaborative soundtracks, which is take a normal techno song, in this case, Orbital's Satan, and have someone from a band just come and wank off on guitar all over it and call it a collaboration. Yeah, I mean, like, this has to be one of the most cheaply made albums of all time. Like, most of this stuff just existed already, and then it got tweaked a little bit and then put into an album that sold like a shitload of copies. As I went back over a lot of these that were not genuine collaborations and were rather just remixes, I found that the collaborations stand up when the artist is actually involved in it. And the other ones are just, let's get 
some dude from some band to just play solos. And I would rather just go back and listen to the original techno song. I totally agree with that. I just don't think Kirk Hammond added anything to this, to be honest. No, he didn't. They just kind of were like, hey, Kirk, you need to do this thing for some soundtrack, some superhero thing. And, you know, he just went in, soloed all over it, didn't care. The end. Next up, we have Corn with the Dust Brothers and Kick the PA. I love this song. Really? I do. PA mean panic attack? Oh, I'm glad you asked. CC Nick, remember our three sources you can go to? Yeah. That was an issue of Metal Hammer, a Angel Fire website, or uh, songmeanings.com. Well, according to uh, various sources on songmeanings.com, PA could mean pain attack because Jonathan Davis suffers from pain. Okay, okay, I'm going to just jump in and say it's not that one. No, it's not pain attack? (laughs) Whatever 13-year-old wrote that is wrong. (laughs) Mm. There was also the thought that maybe it meant performance anxiety, be it uh, on stage or sexual. Oh, a helmet in the bush situation. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Time back! I think that probably the most likely thing is Panic Attack. This is pretty cool song. I have no idea what he's saying. It's got uh, some really cool like hip hop loops, a little bit of West Coast synth, and then just that classic kind of crunchy guitar work. Literally the only note I have is does PAB Panic Attack. Like it, <laughs> it, it, it for me is a song that probably was a throwaway to Korn. Like I, I don't know if it was a true collaboration or if it was a song that Korn wrote and didn't put it on an album. The only other album that this song appears on is a... It's like a B-Sides album, right? It's a B-Sides live acoustic album. It was an MTV Unplugged, wasn't it? Yeah, it it was an MTV Unplugged with Korn. It's shocking that they would include this song in that. A song that was originally written with techno elements. Now they're going to do it acoustic. Yeah. Also, what does a seven-string guitar sound like? Down-tuned to A acoustic. Not good. Not good, Nick. (laughs) No, it is not good. I I watched the unplugged video where they're all sitting around in like the dimly lit auditorium playing Kick the PA. I feel like I can smell that room. (laughs) Like, I just can't imagine any particular member of Korn at any time smells good. Uh, It's probably just like, uh, not Axe body spray, but more like Tag. It's probably like Tag and Blunts. Just like old cigarette. Yeah. Old cigarette. (laughs) Wet dog. Next up, we have the Butthole Surfers with Moby contributing Tiny Rubber Band. Dude, I thought that this was the theme song to The Sopranos. (laughs) (laughs) I feel bad for the Butthole Surfers because it is obvious that some A&R said, can you please recreate the success of Pepper? Pepper was the biggest hit that the Butthole Surfers ever had and the song that sounds the least like the Butthole Surfers. It was done as like a one-off. There's kind of this hip-hop kind of like sing-songy vibe to it and none of their other music sounds like that this one tries to recreate that and it's not very good also i think it's about heroin oh dude i'm gonna just cover the 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 only lyrics in the whole song are shook our clothes into the river never lost a friend and in my room i keep my love a tiny rubber band that's a hundred percent about injecting yourself with heroin and not having any place to live so you're washing your clothes in the river and none of your friends died. Yep. Yep. So. Superheroes. Yeah. And and it really does sound like that. Woke up this morning. Like, Sopranos theme song. (laughs) Next up is our second appearance from Metallica. It's uh, DJ Spooky and Metallica. This is For Whom the Bell Tolls. 
remixed. And my only note on this is that somebody did not get the masters for this song to DJ Spooky because it sounds like something I would have ripped off LimeWire. It is so bad. I, I No, that's probably what happened. That's probably why Metallica hates Napster so much. <laughs> he just ripped this off the internet. Because, like, Metallica, like, for them, it's like, hey, Metallica, we'd like to put one of your songs in the spawn song. She's like, how much money? How much? How much money? Like, they, 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 they had nothing to do with this. None. Nothing. Nothing at all. Uh, I bet you that Kirk Hammett, he did his thing for the Orbital track, and they're like, oh, by the way, we need the masters for uh, for whom the bell tolls, so that DJ Spooky, yeah, 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 I don't care, whatever. And that's what they were left with. Recording quality is terrible. It's bullshit. It's uninspired. It's- yeah, and, like, it fucks with the tempo of an iconic song. Like, it's not good. It's, like... It shouldn't be on here. No, it, like, I hated listening to it. Yeah. And I listened to it two times. <laughs> yeah, it's it sounds like one of those, like, unofficial remixes. Or You would download this from Kazaa, and not only would you, like, melt your parents' computer with, like, pornography adware, this would be, like, DJ Shadow official remix, and you would get this. Yeah. It's, it's super amateur. Yeah. I hate it. Yeah. It's probably the worst uh, song on this album. Yeah, and and that's saying something because we're gonna get into some we're gonna get into some yeah. bad ones. Next up is stabbing westward with Josh Wink. Who's Josh Wink? He is a producer and techno artist. On this album, he goes by Wink. But if you look up, okay. yeah, if you look up his uh, production credits, he's done some shit. This song "Torn Apart" is a remix of the song "Torn Apart" from Stabbing Westward's release "Darkest Days," and I gotta tell you, this version's really good. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, if you listen to the original version, it's all like live drums and guitars. It's got a whole different tempo. You could tell Josh Wink like really wanted to impress his sound upon it, and it holds up. As a side note, whatever happened to Stabbing Westward? I don't. I don't know. Um, and that's probably not something we'll cover because like. Stabbing Westward is not a new metal band. No, they are not. My local radio station, Q101 in Chicago, they used to be the new rock alternative, Q101. They switched it. They were like, the new rock alternative and industrial. Q101 was like, get over yourselves. You play four industrial songs. (laughs) But I don't think that new metal would have been as accepted as quickly had those songs not hit the radio beforehand. Like, they started that, like, dark kind of rock music that opened the vein and allowed the new metal in. Mm-hmm. And if you actually if you go back and listen to Downward Spiral by Nine Inch Nails, it is heavier than anything that Limp Bizkit was doing. Oh, absolutely. Just in a different way. New metal made it more accessible. Anyway, decent song. Got nothing bad to say about it. Next up is Manson and 808 State with Skin Up Pin Up. And wow, this is just the sound of Alternative Nation and its death throes. This is the death yeah. rattle of we were promised we would be huge. There's nothing remotely remarkable about this song, and I feel bad for everybody who participated. Yeah, so, like, I hated that a band called Manson existed at this time. Because anybody that said, hey, did you hear that new Manson song? They weren't thinking about this band. They were thinking about Marilyn Manson. It was confusing. Although I kind of like this song. I think it's kind of good. I think it's kind of, it's intentionally disturbing. Like, it feels like an ode to doing drugs. Um, They made up words. So there's a lyric where she says, sniffleless, sniff on this. (laughs) So I Googled sniffleless. And I realized, like, is she doing, like, a a pun of, like, cocaine and an STD? Like, if you do too much coke, can you get sniffleless? Like, I just don't know what she's trying to go for. And then uh, the next lyric is, pick up a lady, tinfoil, and waiting. 
Like, is this some is this some Richard Pryor shit? Thinking about freebasing. <laughs> a lot of what you hear on this album is holdovers from the grunge era, where everybody got signed in the in the grunge wave, and Manson, uh, Silverchair, and some of these other bands that are on here. They all got signed, and whether it be the industrial wave or the grunge wave, and then they were forgotten when the tsunami of new metal hit because they simply weren't heavy enough, they weren't provocative enough, and they weren't accessible enough. Bands like Manson and techno acts like 808 State and some of the other acts that we'll get onto here, uh, Soul Coughing, stuff like that, they have nuance. They have, uh, they're not made to mosh to. And essentially, new metal went, fuck that shit, and bum rushed them out the door. I, I think a lot of bands broke up in that wake because it's like, what's the point? Well, and uh, music at this time still relied on radio hits. Oh, yeah. Manson, I don't remember what their single was. They did have one, but it, you know, never charted. You know, it got on the radio for a couple weeks and then faded. And, you know, I'm sure they got dropped by their label. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Next up is Prodigy with Tom Morello from Rage Against Machine. The song's called One Man Army. This is classic 90s soundtrack. This is classic collaborative effort. I have written down in caps, extreme 90s. It's so 90s. <laughs> you, want to you want to talk about walking through the club music in a movie? It's this song. Mm. I absolutely love the nonsense lyrics. Prodigy lyrics are always nonsense lyrics. <laughs> yeah, but these are so weird. And they're so great because the more the guy from Prodigy says them, the more badass it sounds. Taste the back of my crystal fist. <laughs> Dog of the reservoir. <laughs> like, just that. Taste the back of my crystal fist. Dog of the reservoir. Cause of friction. Like, those are the only lyrics, by the way. Those three lines are the only lyrics in the whole song. That's it. This is an actual collab that was uh, a B-side off of Fat of the Land, Prodigy's release. Tom Morello does have a co-writing credit on this. And on that B-side, it was called No Man Army for whatever reason. I listened to both and it seems like Tom Morello has more guitar parts in this one. So perhaps you would consider this a remix. This is another bring in a guitarist to wank off all over a uh, techno song. The thing that's interesting about this is Tom Morello still makes this kind of music. He does. Um, yeah. He released an album last year called The Atlas Underground. That's just him collaborating with like EDM artists and rappers and him just noodling his wah-wah guitar parts all over it. I don't hate it. Um, I don't love it, but... I like it. I like it. I think that if I ever had a body pump class at the Y and they put this on, I'd probably throw a dumbbell through like the window. <laughs> I'd, I'd be I'd be stoked. Anyway, next up is Silverchair with Vitrio on a song called Spawn. This is actually a track off the criminally underrated Neon Ballroom. On that album, it's called Spawn Again. It's kind of close to the original of what you hear on Neon Ballroom. It's just got some techno elements applied to it. There's nothing that is really off-brand for Silverchair. And like we were just talking about, I feel like Silverchair is one of those casualties of the new metal wave because first they got co-signed on as like, oh shit, we need the next Nirvana. We need the next Nirvana. Oh, it's these guys. And they're 14. And then they put out there in front of the world, their album is okay. And then they get dropped because the world has moved on. They release Neon Ballroom, which is absolutely incredible. Nobody yeah, cares. Slaps. And Silverchair's gone on to do. Yeah, I mean, I think it's got, I think, what was the one after Neon Ballroom? They had two episodes, or two albums in that period that were both really, really good. And I think that 
they both have a little bit of cult. Yeah, stuff, I mean, so. Nick, you and I saw Silverchair at uh, Lollapalooza. That was what. That was when he had that dope Freddie Mercury mustache. Yeah, oh, it was great. So yeah, th- this one is more of a remix. To me, I feel like they did this as a B-side for what was going to be their second single or something like that. The only reason this got put in here is because it had the word Spawn in it. Oh, so let's say, yeah, some A&R was like, or Silverchair's manager is like, wait, they're making a Spawn movie? My guys, my guys got a song called Spawn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's called Spawn again, but we'll call it whatever the hell you want. Yeah, yeah. My guys on the soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, so it doesn't really fit. It's not written for the movie. It just happens to share a word. Well, and the Neon Ballroom version, so in in both versions, he keeps repeating, who's the bad guy? Who's the bad guy? It turns out the bad guy is Big Meat. (laughs) (laughs) The lyrics in the real record, or the original Silverchair version, say, these are the facts, so eat what you murder. This is animal liberation. Eight billion killed for human pleasure. And I'm like, okay, guy. (laughs) Ooh, you probably wouldn't hear that on the Iron Man soundtrack, is all I'm saying. But, you know, it's very nice to hear some sort of animal rights rallying cry rather than another song about drug use (laughs) (laughs) on a superhero movie soundtrack. (laughs) Next up is, oh, God, I don't even know what to say about this song. This is Henry Rollins with Goldie playing T4 Strain. It's not a song. It's spoken word. It's his fake Bukowski bullshit that gets on my nerves. See, I love Henry Rollins. I yeah, love- as a dude, as a as an author, as a uh, spoken word, and as a punk musician. But I want those things to be separate. Goldie, who I only remember from his bit part in the movie Snatch, and was also married to Bjork. Yeah. Or no, maybe he's dating Bjork. Dating Bjork's probably weird as hell. Oh yeah, <laughs> super weird. Oh god, she wore the swan to dinner. Oh, fuck. Mom, this is Bjork. Yes, she's wearing a swan, Mom. I don't know. It's not really so much a song as just, like, Henry Rollins doing a spoken word poem and, like, some techno beats put over it. I hate it. Oh, it's arguably worse than the Metallica song we talked about a little while ago. Oh, no, we're getting to the worst. We are getting to the worst, my friend, because next up is Incubus with DJ Greyboy and Familiar. Let me ask you this. Yeah. How the hell did Incubus ride this wave? I saw Incubus play with the Deftones on a co-headlining bill. I remember Incubus being lumped into the new metal scene. Well, Incubus, they were signed to Immortal, later to become Epic, Korn. So they suffered from the corn effect. Um, you know that I love a band called Far. They were also kind of Deftones-y, and they were signed to the same uh, label. And they tried to market both Incubus and Far like straight-up new metal bands. Incubus was able to get past it because their Incubus' success was after this. Uh, mm-hmm. It was three, four years after this when they were putting out you know massive hits after hits. Uh, where Far, like the marketing, just didn't represent them well. So the people that would have liked their music never got exposed to because they're like, oh, they're on the same level as Corn. I'm not going to listen to that. Yeah. But uh, this is early in Incubus's career. This is like Fungus Among Us. This was early enough in Incubus's career. DJ Greyboy, I've never heard of. I don't know who that is. It's a rough name. Uh, Incubus is the guy who kind of sucks but you don't have the heart to tell him to fuck off. He's the guy, like, you're about to leave for a party, and he shows up with, like, those puka sticks. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's he's the guy that the girl that you have a crush on in college fucks. Yes, yes. He <laughs> and you're like, well, I have I have my shit way more together than that guy. Yeah, he's the guy. He's the guy your mom cheats on your dad with at like her ladies trip. Oh God, yeah. No, you're right. Like this is the guy who has that faux spirituality and uh-huh. like you know it's it's only cute right up until you're about 28 and then you're homeless. Yeah, dude. When I saw Incubus, I've seen him two or three times. But I saw him on a radio station festival, and their backdrop was like a Japanese-style drawing that he drew of a geisha getting fucked by an octopus. Great. Great. Yeah. Did did he bring out the didgeridoo for that one? Did he play the didgeridoo? I don't think so. Oh, no. When I saw him, he played the didgeridoo. Does anybody play the didgeridoo as much as, like, yell into it? <laughs> I always have to check to make sure it's not one of those rain sticks. The rain sticks. <laughs> could, you, could you imagine being the roadie for Incubus who has to, like, check the didgeridoo every night? Where are my rain sticks? <laughs> yeah, it's it's next to the DJ equipment. <laughs> why, why did Incubus collaborate with a DJ? They, part of their band is a DJ. Yeah, that's true. Although... I don't know what that DJ ever did except that one like wah, wah, it, oh that's all he did oh, all the time what a sweet gig yeah but I mean dude like a band that I love more than almost any other band Deftones has had a DJ forever I've never heard him do anything Incubus is what happens when your community college becomes an album I hate it it's cringy it has this kind of like trip hoppy club vibe with like the west coast going on in it it's oh yeah yeah it is it's got the like like city of compton yeah like keyboard lick but it's played on guitar yeah it's a stupid song by an artist i don't like i'm never gonna think about this song again after we quit recording thank god next up is a song i'm going to think about all the time because it is the best song on the album (laughs) this song with no remorse i want to die by slayer and atari teenage riot I can't think of a better string of words to put together than that right there. Yeah, it's pretty pretty good. Atari Teenage Riot referred to themselves as digital hardcore. That's so cool. <laughs> it's so cool. It's there's nothing about this song I don't like. It's got like the Amen break from James Brown, like played at like 175 BPM. It's got it's got Carrie King just screaming over it. And then it's got Alec Empire screaming as well. And then that girl from ATR just screaming as well. Everybody's screaming all at the same time. Yeah, and, and somehow it sounds like a TV that goes to static in 1985. Yes. Which is like the black and white dots. <laughs> yeah, it makes you want to have a seizure. It's like you're Braid is just having uh, a million little seizures a minute. It is so good. Also, Atari Teenage Riot were like anti-fascist, way ahead of their time. Way ahead like, of their time. Their, they were like they were like a, an anti-Nazi band in 1995. They're just like, why? Why are they so mad at Nazis? And then yeah, I look out the window and there's Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, digital hardcore is just a perfect way to describe what they're doing, and to pair them with Slayer was just such an inspired choice. Uh, the song holds up. The only note I have for it is, fuck yes. That's all I have written down for this song. I would love to like take a stab at mixing it. Like I feel like it could be more listenable if like the Slayer edged out the Atari Teenage Riot a little bit. The guitars are like not quite there as much as like the treble turned all the way up on a lady's microphone. Yeah, like... If you were to bludgeon a Nazi to death with an NES console while Slayer played in the next room, that's kind of what it sounds like. That's that. That's, that's <laughs> about right. 
closing out the U.S. release of this album is Terrible Song by Soul Coughing and Ronnie Size called <clears throat> A Plane Scraped Its Belly on a Sooty Yellow Moon. Of course you would sneak a soul coffee track into our new metal show. You fucking love this guy. I know you do. How many times have you seen Mike Doty? More than I can count. I would say <laughs> upwards of like 25 times I've seen that man perform. I have seen him in multiple states. I watched him perform in the living room. I love I love soul coughing. I love Mike Doty. It's not something that I'm ashamed of. I think he's a brilliant songwriter. I also know that in 1997, soul coughing was on the verge of breaking up and Mike Doty was hopelessly addicted to drugs. This is one of those tracks that has no reason to exist. It is Mike Doty without the help of soul coughing, just reading his spoken word poetry over a Ronnie size track. That's it. Yeah, but there's also an upright bass. It's definitely the only song in this album with an upright bass. I, I gotta tell you, when I bought this album, there the names that drew me to it were Filter, Crystal Method, Soul Coughing, uh, Atari Teenage Riot, and Corn. Those are the names that sold me on this album. And Soul Coughing, I was kind of like, what are you doing? This isn't fun. <laughs> I, I think it's kind of earwash. Like after that like abrasive ass slayer at Atari Teenage Riot, you're like, oh, there's a little coffee shop song. <laughs> True. I wish they would have ended it, though, with there was a Japan only track, which was from Apollo 440 and Mo Morphine called This Is Not a Dream. Morphine was a band from the 1990s that kind of was in line with uh, the Afghan wigs and mm -hmm. what they were doing. Absolutely. The vocalist Mark Salmon uh, died in uh, 99 on stage. And this song it's got a really nice groove. It's very much of the time. Just a super chill kind of, I, I would almost call it trip hop. It's just a very, this would be a perfect song to end the entire soundtrack on. Well, I, I have an addition on the Spotify version of this. It ends with Breathe by Prodigy. Ooh. So like, I don't know what release would have had Breathe by Prodigy. And we definitely don't need to dissect that song. I'm only bringing it up because true story. The first time I ever got heat exhaustion in my life was headbanging like Keith Flint. Rest, Rest in power. power. At the, the dance, the last night of church camp in 1997. <laughs> I was just doing that like fire starter headbang move like way too long to try to impress a girl. And then I threw up because I got heat exhaustion at church camp. Was she impressed? No. She was not. No, who, I'm impressed. Who, who would be? It's just you. That's why we're friends. Just me. I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah, that was... Uh, Nick, any final thoughts on the Spawn soundtrack and or movie? No, I, I'm not going to finish the rest of the movie. I wasted $3 on it, but uh, I would pay $3 to never have to watch it again. The soundtrack, also for me, it's all right. I mean, it's a moment in time. I'm glad we talked about it. I don't love it. I like Judgment Night way more. Yeah, Judgment Night for me is going to sit as one of those heavy hitters. Uh, I think that... Soundtracks like this and collaborative movements like this all came spawned from the Judgment Night soundtrack. Sorry, sorry. But I do feel like it was an important part of the new metal history in that a lot of new metal artists went on to appear in these soundtracks, be they superhero, horror movies. If you look at any movie of the time, there was always a new metal band on there. And uh, this is new metal adjacent. Again, I know it when I see it. Uh, should we talk about what we're listening to? Oh, yes. All right, so we're, we're getting into the warm weather, finally getting out of these winter grays. I'm recording this from Kansas City, Missouri, so winter lasts forever and summer is super hot. So we're in that little golden period where it's really nice to go outside and do stuff, which we were not allowed to do because coronavirus. But I've been feeling a little beachy, so I'm going to talk about it. It's not a new album, but I'm going to talk about the album Seven by Beach House. It came out in uh, 2018. 
And if you haven't heard it, it's sexy and beachy and overall just a wonderful record. I, I can't say enough about it. Top to bottom, it's fantastic. It's a great turntable record. I love to just put it on while I'm doing stuff around the house. Uh, but yeah, that's Seven by Beach House. All right. I have been listening to, Nick, you'll remember this one. I've been revisiting The Last Days of Wonder by The Handsome Family. Well, that's a good one. Yeah, this is an album that I forgot about. I absolutely forgot about it. And you and I really got into this album back in like 08, 09. That sounds about right. Just kind of that goth country Americana vibe. Great storytelling. Yeah, it's a husband and wife. Yeah, and they do just these great songs about things like being stranded on an island and uh, watching everyone die and eating horses and uh, Nikola Tesla uh, sliding into madness or becoming a ghost. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they have a song called If the World Should End in Fire, and then later in the same song, they have one called If the World Shall End in Ice. Yeah. Just covers all the bases. Yeah, I mean, it's great. I've been revisiting that album. I think I went back through what I was listening to through the years, and it's kind of nice to find a band that you forgot existed and then remember how much you love them. That's awesome. Uh, all right. Well, you can find us. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Days of the New, D-A-Y-Z of the New N-U. You can find me at Nick underscore the underscore knife at Twitter and Instagram. And you can find me on Facebook or Instagram, KJ Delory, D-E-L-U-R-Y. And you can't find me on Twitter because it will surely be the death of us all. Go ahead and look for us on Facebook. We had uh, a fan create a Facebook discussion group, so that's been kind of fun. Let us know if there's an album that you want us to go back and revisit and talk about. And please go over to iTunes and give us a five-star review. Help us get some more listens. The more uh, reviews we get, the more exposure we get. And we'd love to help build a community of weird 30-somethings that want to talk about shit we listen to in high school. Yeah, and it doesn't even have to be a thorough review. Just say, go, yeah, stop, get away. <laughs> Just that That's all your review needs. In fact, I would prefer yeah. it if that was what your review was. Guys, thank you once again. We will see you in two weeks with another Days of the New. And for those of you who are getting ready to play along at home on the next episode, get ready, because Nick is going to be covering Trapped by Trapped. Show me a light.